Over the last few weeks, Jesus has uh, referred to himself in several I am statements. We saw a few weeks ago when Jesus referred to himself as the bread of life, and last week he said, I am, uh, I am living waters. And, and this week he says the famous words, I am the light of the world. And, and those, are, those are beautiful words. Uh, those are well-known words. Probably if you're not even usually in, in church, you're probably going like, I, I think I've heard that statement before, especially around Christmas time. Uh, but, but also, those, those words can, can strike us as something that uh, maybe, like, what, what do they really mean? Is that just kind of the sentimental idea of, like, light, light? Well, what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? And, and also, if Jesus is the light of the world, what does that even mean for, for us in, in, in the calling into a world where we know that there is darkness around us? It's, it's beautiful, the idea of light. But, but what do we do in the midst of that darkness? What does it mean to have the light of life? It all seems so abstract. Well, I want to start with a, a rather well-known story or scene from a famous author's life. The author is Robert Louis Stevenson. You may know him from Treasure Island, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He's usually considered one of the 30 greatest English authors of all time. When he was a child, he grew up in, in Scotland, in, in Edinburgh and in the 19th century. And at that time, at nightfall, uh, they had gas street lamps throughout the city center, and they lived down near the city center. And to light those gas street lamps every night, they would turn on the gas, and somebody would come by with a long kind of torch, and they would go by, and they would set, uh, just put the flame to the gas, and <laughs> all throughout the city. And so one night, young Robert is sitting in the window, the Victorian house, and he's looking out, and he's just like, wow, whoa, whoa. And his mother goes, Robert, what, what in the world are you doing in there? And he goes, look, Mommy, that man is punching holes in the darkness, right? And isn't that just when you hear that statement, it, it captures this kind of very creative, but just this childlike wonder at, at that, what, how that statement, I am the light of the world, really hits us. That, that, that wonder at what if. What if in whatever darkness you're experiencing, whatever darkness is around you, whatever darkness you know is within you, if in the midst of that darkness, light broke through and punched a hole in the darkness, that that's possible. But one thing that's interesting is that story, which I've read several times in books as a, an illustration or whatnot, it's never juxtaposed to the Robert Louis Stevenson, the adult Robert Louis Stevenson. See, when he's well-known for a specific theme in his writings, he was raised in, I believe it was a conservative Presbyterian home, and, and so he, he knew even of these statements of Jesus that he's the light of the world and whatnot, and, and, but his writings as an adult wrestled with this key theme of darkness overcoming light, evil overcoming good. This is why his most well-known work, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the, the bad was a bad Mr. Hyde, I think it is, overcomes the good Miss Dr. Jekyll. I can't remember which way it is, but the bad <laughs> overcomes the good, the darkness overcomes the light, because here's the thing, as an adult, he wrestled with, what if the light doesn't overcome the darkness? What if that's just all naive, childish thinking? What if, in fact, what's true in this world is that the darkness overcomes the light? The darkness actually vanishes, extinguished, punches holes in the light rather than the light punching holes in the darkness. 
And we today have the same thing. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, you can have the light of life if you know me. In the midst of the darkness of the world you're in, in the midst of the darkness within you, the same tension comes up in us. Jesus, what does it mean that you're the light of the world? What does it mean that you're going to punch holes in the darkness? And what's the calling upon us? And how is this even possible? Where do we do this? And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at first the promise of light. What is this promise of light? What does Jesus mean by these words? Versus just some kind of like new agey light, right? Like what, how do you, what does he mean by this? And then second, the darkening of light. How is it that we miss the light? How is it that we live in the darkness? And then third, how to punch holes in the darkness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have given us light, that you say that your word is a light to our path, a light to our feet, that you go before us. And so, Lord, this morning, would you uh, lighten the way? Would you illumine our minds, our hearts, to see deep in ourselves the new recesses that perhaps even Father, we don't want to look at? But Lord, would you reveal things to us? Would you show us the path to Christ? Would we encounter your grace anew? Would we encounter hope anew in Christ? And Lord, would you show us what it looks like in the darkness of our life to step into it and bring the light? Spirit, would you guide your people? Would you build us up? Would these not be my words, but your words? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The promise of light. Uh, first, I have to address a big elephant that's in the text. Okay, there's an elephant in the room, there's an elephant in the text here, and that is that probably all of you, if you have a Bible open, you see a footnote. And that footnote describes something about a passage that if you're, you were here last week and you're really, really on top of things, you know that we jumped from 752. John 7.52 to John 8.12. We skipped John 7.53 to John 8.11. Why is that? Well, in most of your Bibles, it has a note that says something like this. There is a scene there that most likely, while it is included in our English Bibles, just because they're like, we want you to have it, uh, it most likely was not in the original text. And this is one of, this is uh, next to the ending, longer ending of Mark's gospel, one of the, the largest manuscripts, discrepancies, you could say, that we have. So what, how should we think about this? And, and the question for me is, why do we normally not, why do we think it wasn't a part of the original text? It's not an inspired word that God has breathed out, but how should we think about this scene, how it's included, and perhaps why it's included, why it shouldn't be included, but then also why was it put into the text and why do we have it? Um, I'm just going to read part of it so you know what I'm talking about here. Uh, and uh, it has this famous scene where they bring, the Pharisees bring a woman to Jesus. This woman's been caught in adultery. It says in verse uh, 4, it says, Teacher, this woman's been caught in ad adultery. And now in 5, now in the law of Moses, command us to stone such women. So what do you say? Verse 6, this they said to test him. So they, they brought this woman to Jesus, and they say, she, she committed adultery. We're supposed to stone her. We heard that you've been talking about this grace thing, so they're kind of testing Jesus based upon what they've heard about him. And Jesus, this is, uh, they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him, Jesus. So Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. You may have heard this famous scene. He writes on the ground in the sand, kind of drawing a line in the sand. We don't know what he wrote. But then it says, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. 
And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when he, they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left with the woman standing before him. Probably they left the older ones because the younger would follow the older. So when the older left, then the younger then left because they were following their leaders. And then Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are, you? where are they? Has no one to condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And you imagine she looks up. No one's going to stone me now. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, it's a beautiful passage, right? Beautiful scene. Many of you probably didn't know that this most likely wasn't included in the original text. So how should we think about it? The reason why it's most likely not a part of the original biblical text is because, as a footnote in your Bible prize says, it was, it's not included in the earliest manuscripts. Um, so, in fact, in the East, uh, manuscript uh, that were carried on in the Far East, um, it doesn't appear until the 10th century, so a thousand years after Jesus' life. Um, but then most anything before like the 8th century, it's essentially nowhere there. When we have manuscript evidence of John's gospel, there's about 5,000 plus manuscripts, by far the most for any book in the world, in world history. Um, it, we do not have this included in it. It was added in Later, the Bible was copied from scribe to scribe. That's why we call it manuscripts. They would write down a copy. They didn't have Xerox machines or anything like that, so they'd be copying it down. What often would happen is as a scribe was copying it down is they would take something like this, which was most likely a well-known story, a historical event that happened with Jesus that had been passed down. They took it and they said, this seems like a great place to insert this story. And so they would insert it at some point. In fact, all four of the Gospels, this story in the manuscript evidence over the centuries appeared all over the place. Now, that makes for an interesting point because why does it occur wherever it's occurred? Why is it inserted wherever it's inserted? There's a similar theme throughout all those places. And that theme is that there's something with the religious leaders who have erected a system, kind of this, this moralistic system, and they're seeking to entrap Jesus, but Jesus then extends grace to an individual. We're going to come back to that because that's going to help illustrate, I believe, that someone inserted this in order to illustrate what we're about to see Jesus unpack with the religious leaders regarding him being the light of the world. But with that, this text does not fit the narrative flow. John 52, it's at the end of the scene, the first of the eight days at the Feast of Tabernacles, and Jesus is there engaging with people. And then it starts in verse 12 by saying, uh, then uh, again, Jesus spoke to them. It continues right there with this language, and this imagery of the light of the world is connected to the Feast of Tabernacles. In other words, chapter 7, Feast of Tabernacles, then we get to this scene where it's like going on somewhere else, and then all of a sudden, and back in verse 12, we're back at the Feast of Tabernacles, which we'll unpack in a second. So it seems it doesn't fit with the narrative flow. It was inserted because it illustrated something that the scribe thought was a dynamic when they were interpreting the text. So hold on to that. We're going to come back to that and that dynamic between the Pharisees and religious leaders and the ideology, the institution they had erected, and how that affected the individual and how Jesus responds to one versus the other. So continuing on with verse 12. So Jesus, I know that was a mouthful. You're like, wow, okay, there we go. Now verse 12. So I'm going to teach the rest of the text as if this is the inspired Word of God and use the other one later as a bit of illustration. 
So in verse 12, Jesus speaks to them and he says these words, these famous words at the Feast of Tabernacles. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what is Jesus saying with these words? Well, the Feast of Tabernacles was an eight-day feast as we looked at last week. And during this feast, the Jews would reenact their 40-year wanderings in the wilderness. So tabernacles is another word for a temporary tent or dwelling. And what they would do is they would gather around. It was the largest gathering of the, of the year for the Jews. They would gather around Jerusalem and around the temple, but in the outskirts of Jerusalem in the wilderness, they would build these tents that they lived in for eight days. And, and so for those eight days, then they would gather in the temple and they would have a sacrifice every morning. Then they would parade around the altar and they would pour out water and they would cry out to God, save us. And then on the eighth day, when they would uh, gather around, then they would cry out to God and they would ask him to bring rain for the harvest and all these things. And that's when Jesus, as we saw last week, says, I am that living water. Now, one detail we didn't go over was that it seems every night during those eight days, they would do something at dusk. As the sun was setting and it grew dark, they would light up candelabras, which if you don't know, it's like the, the five candles, you know, like on a stick, and they would light those up and they would light them up all throughout the temple. And the people would begin playing music. They would, like the banjos are brought out and they're playing folk songs and they're singing and they would dance. And it was this picture of the fact that in the midst of the darkness of the world, in the midst of the, the, the shadows and the, this permeating, suffocating reality of darkness, in the midst of just as it was spiritually in the wilderness, where are we abandoned by God? In the midst of it, God draws near and they say, we know we have the light of God. We can dance. We can have joy. We can sing in the middle of the darkness because we have life in our God and we can trust Him and have hope in Him. And every night they would do that. And every night they would light up the candles in the temple. And as it filled up the temple with this light, that light then would also begin to permeate down the hill out into the city, into the darkness and beyond. And it is on the last night, as they're probably dancing around, as these, everything's lit up, that Jesus then says to them, he stands up and he says, I am the light not only for this temple. I'm the light not only for you. I'm the light for the world. This life that has come in the midst of the darkness, I am going to bring it here and I'm going to bring it there. Wherever the darkness is, that's the life I am bringing. And see how it's amazing calling. Jesus is saying, not only who I am, but what I'm calling you to, what I've done, but what I will do. Now, what is that imagery of light? Like, what, what really is Jesus getting at with that? Is it just, well, there's a light there, so I'm like, I'm like a lamp. And, you know, I'm like that, right? Like, what, what's it connected to? Why the light imagery? What were they celebrating at the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, they had light imagery because God led his people with a pillar of light while they were in the wilderness. And it, and it would symbolize two primary things. The first was that God has given us in this life, in the midst of the darkness of light, he's given us a source of light. He's given us a source of light. Uh, Exodus 13, and the Lord went before them, this is back in the wilderness, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. So during the day, they would have a pillar, a cloud that would f lead them whenever they they journeyed. They lived life. But then at night, it says, by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night 
did not depart from the people. Uh, one of the things, I think we, we forget how necessary this is to have light in the darkness in the modern world, right? Because we, we have electricity, right? <laughs> so we just walk in a room, like my, my children do, and there's like, flip, 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 flip. I'm, like, I'm going to have a stroke if you don't stop that, right? But we're just used to turning on light, and, and the darkness is vanquished by the light. I, my, uh, my grandmother uh, was, her family during the Depression were cattle salesmen in, in Midwest Ohio. And they, uh, in order to be able to make it through the Depression, because they were doing fairly well for the times, uh, they installed the first electric light bulb in a barn uh, at that point. It was like 19, what, 28, 29. And they installed the first electric light bulb in that part of Ohio in the barn. And she said, you would not believe, like, just to turn on. It's not like one of these lights, like really bright, like a modern light, right? It, it's one of these lights that, like, you barely, you know, you turn it on if you've ever seen an old light bulb, and it's kind of like, Okay, like it barely lights things up, but it allowed them to work through the night in the barn. And she said, people would drive from miles around, right? And they would just stand around and they'd be like, here we go. And the light would turn on and be like, oh, and turn up, oh, right? Like, be, be, but they could work in it. And so we forget how amazing it is when light comes into the midst of the darkness. If you've ever gone for a walk in the woods and you don't have light and the full moon's not out, you know, you can't even see your hand in front of you. Like how many times I walk into our, our bedroom and it's dark at night and I want to wake up my wife and I'm just like tripping over things and stepping on the cat and whatnot. And what do I need? My wife eventually, like I'm over, like come over here. She turns on her phone, right? Like here's where you go. And we, in the modern world, we forget how much we need light to light our path. And, and in other words, we can't even see our own hand. We can't even understand ourselves. We can't orient ourselves. We can't get our bearings. We can't know what we're going to trip over, what we're going to fall into. If there's a hole right there, if there's something we have to step over, if there's something we have to climb, we can't see anything. It's a picture of what God gives us in a source of light. As Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word illuminates all of reality. God's word illuminates how the world works. God's word illuminates what has gone wrong with us and how we can find healing, what we do with our guilt and our sin and how we, we find righteousness and, and how we find meaning and how we find purpose and all of these things. God's Word reveals it. It lights the path. It shows us the way forward. And so what Jesus is saying is, I'm, I'm the light. I'm the one who will guide you. I'm the one who makes known the truths that you need to live by in order to find salvation and eternal life. And that's the second thing that the light would capture for Israel in this lighting ceremony. It captured that they were saved by the light, that they were saved by the light. They had been saved by the light in the wilderness, and they were going to be saved by the light ultimately by God as well. It says, then the angel of, the, of God, this is Exodus 14, who was going before the host of Israel, these are just the people, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. So Egypt being this darkness and enslaving reality, and it's coming between them and that darkness. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near to the other all night. See, this is a dynamic I think we feel a little bit more as modern people because we have things like floodlights on our houses, right? If something dark, evil is coming up to our house to rob us, light comes on. They run. Right? We have things in our children's bedrooms like nightlights. No worry. Maybe you're in college and you have a nightlight. No shame, right? Just guilt. Uh, but you have, <laughs> no, but you have a nightlight, right? Because why? You're warding off something evil, something dark. 
that thing in the closet, that thing under the bed, but if there's light, it won't come out. We're safe. Right? We, we know it because we bring light. We know wherever there's darkness, we know that bacteria grows. Things grow in darkness. Things fester in darkness. Things that are, are dark and evil, they grow there. And, and, and light is what cleanses. Light is what protects. Light is what saves. And what God or what Jesus is saying and saying, I'm the light world, just the same way that the light came between you and what is dark, I'm going to come into you and I'm going to, I'm going to make a gap. I'm going to separate you from the darkness that's within you. I'm going to separate you from the darkness around you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide salvation for you, a covering for you. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of life. I'm the one who paves the way. I reveal what life is all about. I reveal to you how to know God and have life in Him. I'm the light of life. I'm salvation. I'm the source of life. So Jesus isn't just saying some, you know, new age, like inner light, like Jesus is my light and I just kind of feel it, right? And, no, he's, he's really talking about concrete realities here. And he's saying, I've punched one massive hole in the darkness of this world. But the problem is we often can walk in the darkness. So before we talk about how, what does that mean, you know, beyond, okay, Jesus punched a hole in the darkness, so how do we then walk in that light? First, we have to talk about how, why is it that we walk and how do we darken the light? Why is it that we often walk in the darkness? Um, John gospel. If you've ever like studied the Bible, read about the Bible, you know that John's gospel is unique because it's usually considered one of the most sophisticated books, if not the most sophisticated book in all of the, the Bible. What I mean by that is John in the way he engages with thematically, with essentially like prevailing philosophical categories and thought and whatnot. Um, and, and, and so John, when, when, he was writ- when it was written, it was one of the, it was the last Gospels, one of the later books in the New Testament. So by this point, the Gospel has spread much farther. It's about 70 AD most likely. And so the Gospel has spread to especially the prevailing Hellenistic culture, the Greek culture all around them. And they were known for like Aristotle and Plato and all that. And so you, it's known for its philosophical insights. And so John, by this point, his Gospel is unique because oftentimes it's kind of addressing in almost this subterranean way, these prevailing ways of thinking about the world, okay? And so Jesus, what He does often in John's Gospel, because oftentimes we kind of skip along the surface of what's happening in these scenes, but what Jesus does is he, he addresses often in his interactions with people kind of these deep realities that we have to think about. So here's the thing. We often read what comes after Jesus' words in verse 12, verses 13 through 30, and his interaction with the religious leaders we, we refer to it as kind of like fly like uh, flyover country. You know what I'm talking about, flyover country? Like when I lived in California for about eight years and I would fly back home to Ohio, um, people would say, oh, uh, you know, flyover country. And it, it offended me. I was like, that's not flyover country. Like, because I knew what they were saying, right? Like you just kind of skip over it. There's life here and then you land there and there's life there. The rest of it's just kind of flyover country because really life's there and there. But in between all these details down here, even though there's beauty down there and there's life down there and there's all this richness of, of what's going on down there, what we assume is it's here and it's here and down here, there's not really much to add. And we often read the Bible and we get to parts where Jesus is interacting with the religious leaders and we think of it in our minds, we, we, we kind of relate to it like flyover country. 
we relate to it. Like, there's nothing really down there for me to look at, so I'm going to go from this, hey, living water, uh, light of, of the world, and then maybe like, uh, let's just keep, uh, oh, a healing, right? Like, eventually we get there, and it's like, now we're back to the action, right? And so, because sometimes we don't understand what's going on with the interactions between Jesus and the religious leaders. On the surface, at first, it doesn't make sense what's going on. But there is a reason why the religious leaders, when they hear Jesus say, I'm the light of the world, they respond the way they do. There's a reason why they do. It prompts them, it provokes them to respond in a very specific way. Now, to just set it up quickly, to help us understand what's going to happen here. John's gospel has had this thread throughout it that's dominant especially from about chapter 6 through chapter 10. We're going to see this a lot. And that is the kind of thread, the unity of the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You may have noticed it last week, that whatever the Father wills, then the Son accomplishes. So the Father wills salvation. The Father wills that people will come to know Him. The Father wills this redemptive, this way of redemption. And what the Son does is the Son has one will with the Father, and the Son, then He's united with the Father. He then fulfills the Father's will, and He comes into the world, and He accomplishes what the Father has willed. And then the Spirit comes and applies what the Son has accomplished in our lives. Now, with that, that is why John's Gospel will say things like, if you know the Father, Jesus says, if you know the Father, you'll know me. If you, if you know me, you know the Father. If you hear me, you hear the Father. If you judge, uh, if, if I judge, I judge as the Father judges. If, if you see me, then you see the Father. They're, they're connected because what Jesus is saying is what God has done and He's willed, then I carry out. Whatever the Father has said, then I'm revealing to you more specifically. Whatever the Father has promised, now I'm going to fulfill it. There is a connecting line between the Father and the Son. Now, that's important because for one reason, it also maps on what you could call like basic philosophical categories. And this, stay with me here for the next 45 seconds, because this is where John, you go, okay, John does have unbelievable depths to it. Because what happens, in philosophical categories, you have what is, okay, this is called ontology. I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about how you form a basic worldview. We've gone over this in the first part of John's gospel. You can go back and listen to chapter 1 for more depth on this. But what you have, anytime you form a worldview or anytime you approach anything, is you have to have an ontology. What is? How does being exist? Where did it come from? What is being in general? And then out of that, you have to have what's called epistemology which is how do we know things? How do we know what is? How do we know what has been revealed? Do you have a Bible or what reveals truth? What's your authority? Then after that, you have ethics, and that is how do we live, okay? Now, the, the importance of this is that if you have the bridge between what is, okay, and how you are to live or respond in accordance with what is, is revelation or what's been revealed or your source of truth that tells you what is and how to live. It's a value judgment. So there's a famous statement from a philosopher named David Hume that summarizes this, where he says, an is cannot necessitate an ought or a should. You're like, what does that mean? Well, here's what he means. 
He means that an is, so let's say your body, or no, let's, let's use a baby. An is, a baby is, it exists. Jump to ethics. What ought or should you do with that baby? Nurture it or get rid of it, even kill it? What can make the claims of what you should do ethically with what is? And, and what philosophers have noticed is that an is, just something that is, you can't immediately say there's a rock. Do you stone it? Do you, do you nurture the rock? Do you, with a baby, what, what do you, your body, sexually, what do you do with your body? It is, it doesn't automatically necessitate what you ought to do with your body. And here's why this matters, because it goes the other way as well. Whatever you believe is your source, so like whatever you believe ethically you should do came from a source of revealed value judgment or source of authority, and that revealed something rooted in what is, what it was created for. The reason why I bring this up is because the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees is going to be going directly at that issue of that bridge of what is your moral source of authority and how can you make claims about how people should live in the world. In other words, Jesus is that point of revelation. Jesus is that source of authority. And they're questioning, Jesus, should we listen to you? Because you just said, I'm the light of the world. Follow me. I'm going to tell you how to live life. I'm going to reveal to you good and evil. They're getting all this. And so immediately, if you're going to make ethical claims, what they do is they say, you can't make ethical claims without having a source of authority. And it's going to go back then to the ground of reality of the Father, okay? So I know that sounds really dense, but stay with me because now I'm going to walk through verses 14 down through verse 20 because it's going to help you understand why John's gospel goes here, what they're interacting with. Jesus, so the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They're saying, Jesus, you can't be the source of authority. Jesus, you, you couldn't possibly. And so Jesus has to answer, how is it that I'm the source of authority? How am I revelation? How can I speak to you about how to live? And this is key in our day because the question for us is, why should we listen to Jesus as the source of truth? Because as we're going to see, often we don't want to listen to Jesus as a source of truth. We don't want to listen to God as a source of truth. So then he says in verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. So he says, okay, even if I do bear witness about myself, let's just play that out for a minute. For where, why, for where I come from, I, come, I came from, and where I am going. For I know where I came from and where I am going but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. What's he alluding to there? Well, something he's going to unpack. I come from the Father. He's saying I can be the source of authority because I am the logos of the Father. I'm the logos of God. I'm the revelation of God. I'm the Son of God. And he created all things. He willed all things. And then he willed that I would come into the world. I am the perfect revelation of all truth, of all reality, everything. I make all things known. Because I come from what is. I am the one who created everything that is. So therefore, I can bear witness about myself. I don't need a higher source of authority. I'm self-attesting. 
15, you judge, Jesus continuing, you judge Pharisees according to the flesh. I judge no one. Now, you go for a second, you go, wait, Jesus doesn't judge you? Okay. See, Jesus, he doesn't judge, but he says, yet even if I do judge, you're like, oh, okay, Jesus does judge. Uh, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. What are you saying there? For instance, the will of the Father when he judges or makes ethical claims, judges right and wrong. I, Jesus is saying, in a human way, I don't judge. In a human way, I don't just come up here and I'm claiming like, hey, I feel like it should be this way or that way. It's a, he's saying, I, because I am the Son of God, when I do judge, I judge in accordance with the Father's will. I judge in accordance with the reality that the Father has created. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is, I, when I judge, it's in, a, it's in accordance with the holy character of God. It's in accordance with His salvation. It's in accordance with giving you life and joy in His presence forever. I've come to bring you that. Verse 17, in your law it is written that the testimony of true two people is true. So Jesus now says, all right, you have your little games, you have your rules, you added on to the Old Testament law, and you added on these rules that it's like, okay, uh, how do you know that something's true? Well, somebody else has to attest to it. it this is kind of like, you know, in like people like with book, the back of book endorsements, like you read like in this little kind of tribe, people have their little shtick, and they're like, you know, like you read one guy and you're like, oh, there's a book endorsement from another authority, you know, like another doctor and this doctor. And then you read the other doctor. It's like, oh, the other doctor. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. They're just attesting to one. Okay, I get what's going on here, right? What happens for the, for the religious leaders was they knew they could not claim things because it wasn't in Scripture. So what they did was they added on to Scripture and all these rules. And then what they would do is they would say, well, by what authority can you say that? You'd be like, this other guy over here, the scribe over here, and the guy over here is like, oh, yeah, 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 it's, 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 it's in there right? Because remember, most people couldn't read Hebrew. Most people couldn't, they were illiterate, they couldn't read. They had to depend on the scribes and the Pharisees. And so they would just tell them, they would just go, yep, it's true, it's authoritative. So Jesus says, you play this game. So I'll play your game. I'll play your game for a second. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Jesus is saying, fine, I need someone else to bear witness about me. The Father who I've come from bears witness about me. And I am the revelation of the Father. So therefore, when I bear witness about myself, I'm bearing witness to you of the Father's witness about me. <laughs> Make sense? He's saying, I'm self-attesting to who I am. In other words, what Jesus is saying is if there is some source of authority outside of me that attested to me, if anything outside of me, then that thing would be God. But in fact, I attest to who I am. I am the revelation of truth. I am the ground of all knowledge of all light and the darkness. He says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. There's an irony too I just want to point out here. I, last week I didn't, you may have noticed I didn't follow the thread. It three or four times says they were seeking to arrest him, but they couldn't because his hour had not come. The father's will was that the hour was not yet. There is an irony here when these men can't, they, they believe, they're, they're wondering, Jesus, how can you attest to the Father? And, and Jesus is revealing the truth of the Father. Jesus is revealing the will of the Father, the judgment of the Father, all these things. He's making all these things. No, so they would know how to live. 
And in the midst of it, they're, they're questioning the father. And the whole time when they're seeking to arrest him, they can't arrest him because it's not the will of the father to arrest them, even though it's their will to arrest him. In other words, there's an irony woven throughout the narrative here and the discourse to say, by the way, remember, they can't actually arrest him because it's not the father's will. Why? Because the father's the ground of reality. Jesus is a revelation of that reality. and It's not time yet. And so therefore, they can't do it. It's a deep irony of what's going on here. It's also pointing out something else that's going on in the text. Why can they not see Jesus and see the beauty of the truth of what Jesus is saying and who he is and the life that he's giving them? Verse 15, their will is, and their thinking is driven by their flesh. You judge according to the flesh. Jesus says, I judge no one according to the flesh. I'm not driven by flesh is this category for like world, like human embodiment in this fallen world. It includes your desires. And so you can think of your hormones, your biology, and the world thought systems and philosophies that uh, and advertising coming in and influencing you and all the things just driving your life in this fallen world. And he's saying that is what is driving how you think through truth. In other words, what Jesus is saying is you can't hear my word and you can't find life and you can't find life. And you're continually stumbling in the darkness because of one simple reason. Because you've decided to make your flesh, your desires, your source of truth. You have deemed that I am not truth because you desire something in your flesh. And so when God's word comes in, when I come in and speak, you reject it and you silence it and you corner it off into a little corner and, and put duct tape on the mouth of God's word because it comes up against something you desire. This is something we've seen several times in John's gospel because it runs all throughout. What Jesus is saying here is that we cannot experience the life of God, the light of God's illuminating presence, his wisdom in our lives, unless we're willing when we hear God speak to conform our desires, our flesh, to what his word says. Jesus is the word of God come in human flesh. And so he comes into our human nature and he reveals how we can know God and how we can align to the truth of who he is. And Jesus says you can either follow me in that or you can merely follow your flesh. You can empty it in your life of God's word and silence it. And you can try to conform God's word to your flesh and your desires. My question is, where are you darkening the light of God's word in your life with your desires? And, and let's be honest, there are things in our life in our day and age, they're hard to accept. I know we looked at this for a few weeks ago, but I think it's helpful to say every day, examine, look at your soul. Where are there things where you're just tempted to go like, yeah, but God. And it's one thing to wrestle with it, but it's a whole different thing just to immediately try to make it conform to what you want to be true. And so again and again, we see this question, are you willing to let Jesus be the one when you're trying to figure out how to live life, ethics and whatnot, right and wrong? How do we flourish as human beings? How do I flourish sexually? How do I flourish financially? How do I flourish in my life? How do I flourish in my body and health and all the different things? How do I just live this life spiritually? How do I flourish emotionally? And Jesus says, I have come into the world to reveal to make known to you. I am the revelation of how you were created and designed to live. 
And I don't just make known to you how to live morally. I make known to you and I make known to you how you can know God and have relationship with Him again and life with Him again. Now with that, I'm going to hit the second point in verses 21 through 30 quickly. What happens is if our desires darken, like our desires become our source of truth, then our desires also will end up driving how we find salvation. So remember the light that Jesus is referring to is both the source of light and salvation. And what happens here with the Pharisees is we get these, this dialogue that shows how they darken their ability to see the source of light and it darkens their ability to see salvation. So here's what happens. Because the Pharisees were following their flesh and they couldn't see the way to salvation in Jesus. Watch this. Because Jesus is going to be making known to them just basic realities of the cross, of, of eternal life with Him, of eternal life with His Father, the heart of what's been communicated ever since the Old Testament. Everything these scribes, these Pharisees would know so incredibly well. They would have been able to memorize, they would have been able to rehearse and repeat to you. have said, Deuteronomy 21, and they would just blah, 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 blah. They'd been able to say, Deuteronomy 7. See, the Lord God, not because of how strong we were, not because of how numerous we were, not because we're greater than all the peoples of the world, but because of his love, he set his love upon us. They would know these things. They could repeat them to you on command. But they missed the whole heart of God because their flesh was driving their desire, whatever it was, power, control, or whatnot. And after it was driving their ability to read God's word, it also drove where they sought to find salvation. Look at how they miss it. In verse 21, he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, I'm, where I'm going, you cannot come? Jesus is kind of like, well, I'll die. Close, right? It's half. And he said to them, you are from below and I'm from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Jesus is right here saying, this is why you can't see who I am. Because you're living in this world. You're looking in this world for salvation. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he who will die, uh, I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say to you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I will declare to the world what I have heard from him, from the Father. I'm making these things known. I'm accomplishing his will. I'm bringing salvation. I'm the one who's being, and they just can't see it because it doesn't match with the desire that they have in their flesh. It doesn't match to have someone now who's the perfect sacrifice for sins when they control the whole sacrificial system and they control people with it and they feel self-righteous with this whole system that they've constructed. And so when Jesus says in verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son, you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father has taught me. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. I am always for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Jesus is saying, and some of these people around them, verse 30, they believe but the Pharisees can't see because their flesh has become their source of truth. And they have an, erected an entire system, a way of living, a way of relating to God, a way of founding salvation that doesn't come from the light of Christ. It comes from, you could say, just this inner light, this inner sense of my desires, this inner sense of illumination, just whatever I deem to be true. And they're operating from that. And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying to them, it's going to blind you. If you live, you'll, live, you'll lose the source of truth, and then you'll lose your source of salvation. 
In fact, you'll try to find salvation some other way like the Pharisees. See, one of the things for every human being, we have to, as human beings, amongst other things, but I think two core things we try to do every day is we as human beings have to have a way to deal with our guilt, with our sin, with our shame. But it's not just enough just to not feel bad, right? Then you're neutral. But the other side of that coin is that then we also have to have a way of redemption. We have to have a way to feel like, a should, like we've done enough, like I'm enough. I've done enough. I've proven myself. I'm good. I'm righteous. And, and what happens when we follow our desires and we, we shut off God's word and where we can find that redemption ultimately in Christ, what happens is eventually we will erect our own system and we'll try to find salvation in that system. Or what will happen is we'll adopt someone else's system. This is why you have throughout world history over and over again, like totalitarian regimes, where you have somebody like Hitler who comes up and he promises them, he just taps into, I mean, credence to him, good grief could he read people. And he tapped into that psychological need for safety after the inflationary issues with the mark after World War I. And anyway, we can go into history, but didn't mean to do that. But out of all that desperation for a desire for control, for a desire for pride for the German people, for a desire, even though they're amongst the most the most intelligent, highly educated people in the world, that the moment that he came in and said, if you will give yourself for this nation, if you will, if you will make yourself a good person, a member of the people, of the Volk, then you can be saved. We can be saved. And there are things in our life that come in this totalitarian way and they provide for us. It might be something like that or it could be modern ideologies and they come in and they, they promise us this ability to save ourselves. but they don't. So whether it's the Pharisees distorting the temple system so they could save themselves, whether it's being a German citizen, which is why most of the country, you say, well, if I lived there, I wouldn't have done that. Really? We have modern ideologies now, usually very politically active. They say, if you are a part of this, you do this, you can follow your desires, you can have those, and then you can be a part of this and you can feel good. It darkens our ability to see where our true, the true light is found in Christ. Now with that, so Jesus in his interactions with them is saying, do you see where the source of light comes from that it's me? Are there places where you're trying to conform God's word to your desires, your flesh? And also, are there ways that you're trying to save yourself that right now there's something that's probably exhausting you and you feel like you're on a treadmill every day just trying to prove yourself in your career? You're trying to prove yourself, I don't know, about some ideological issue on social media and you're constantly having to rail about it or whatnot. And I mean conservative or progressive, whichever way here. What happens is there's something there that if I'm just active enough, there's the atonement of Christ is not enough. Him being hung up on the cross is not enough, but I have to show I am active in cleansing the world of darkness. Then I will be enough. Then I will be saved. Is there something that right now has you, reminds me of Alice in Wonderland when they're running and she says, I have to run, run, run faster and faster just to stay in the same place you're exhausted trying to prove yourself again and again because your parenting is tied up with your salvation, your work is tied up with your salvation, your possessions are tied up with your salvation because perhaps there could be something at the core, a fleshly desire you're going after and you're not wanting to bring it to Jesus where you can find that true, full salvation. And you're trying to build something around it to avoid it. Jesus is saying, come to me. You can't come back to reality until you come through me. 
So then how do we poke holes in the darkness? There are three primary areas we have to address. The first, it's the darkness within the darkness in the world and the darkness in our work. This is where we're closing. The darkness within, quickly. Again, as I said many times, take time to ponder. Are, be honest with yourself. Like, guys, I've shared, I, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, okay, which I think is somewhat abnormal for pastors, but whatever. And one of the things that I found was um, I, I, my defaults, they match, well, let me say it this way, they match, like, the ideological uh, presuppositions of the world around us were my presuppositions. So on sexuality, gender, all, all the different things. So when I read the Bible, I did not like it. Like, <laughs> I was reading it going, how can I? And I, you can find people who will help you twist the Bible to say what you want to say. It's very easy. What I found when you actually study the Word of God, God's very clear on some things. And so are, just let me ask, are there things, desires that are just driving you to try to twist God's word? Because what happens is once you realize, really, this is all about my desires and I'm the source of truth, it's only a matter of time before you go, you know, I, like, why would I need, what else is it wrong about? Why would I really need it? Versus everyday training our hearts to trust God and over time prove his goodness and his faithfulness and how true his word is, even in the midst of the wrestling. And that might be something that's a lifelong journey, but seeing over time how God does that and rooting yourself there and more and more coming to trust God's word. Which trajectory are you on? So first we have to address the darkness within us, but then second, the darkness in the world. There, one thing is, in our world, there is darkness, there is evil. It's all around us. Some of us feel more like, hey, there's, there's darkness in the world and what that might be and how we might name it and, and point to it, but there is darkness in our world. And I think the question becomes, how do we respond to the darkness in our world? How do we respond to the ideologies prevailing in our day? And maybe I'll, I'll hit on one or two, of maybe like with sexuality, things like that. But, but then we also have the question of how do we respond to individuals? I think that this is why this scene from 753 to 811 was included. Because what happens in that scene is Jesus does what he often does, which is Jesus addresses with very firm, at times harsh language, mockery even, of the ideologies, the institutions, and it's usually the religious leaders because they're protecting the institutions and the ideologies that they've created, usually distorting God's word, and he comes at them hard. I mean, you want to talk about like that idea of like punching holes in darkness. That's what Jesus does when he brings the light. He, he mocks by showing the inconsistencies of what they're saying. He shows the hypocrisy. He, he, he will even, uh, in the midst of it, he uses this firm language because what he wants to do is he says, I know you're not operating in good faith. I know you're testing me. I know you're trying to lead people astray. I know you know exactly what you are doing. And so I'm not going to play your games. I'm going to call it for what it is. I'm going to go straight and I think that that then is juxtaposed often in Scripture and especially in that picture that's seen with the woman, that then Jesus turns to the individual who's been targeted by the system, the one who's been targeted by the ideology, the one who's been led into this whole this realm of being pushed away from the light and left in the darkness and being enslaved to sin and whatever it might be. And when she comes in, Jesus then is gracious. He's welcoming. He doesn't punch holes in the darkness. He pursues her with light. The reason why I say this is I think that what this drives at here is something that's absolutely necessary for us right now, especially what, midterms are like five, six weeks away? 
which is that what we see biblically again and again is that there is a different response to the ideologies or institutions versus, in terms of darkness and how we respond to it, versus at an individual level. In other words, with ideologies, institutions, where we see that there is something being promoted that's being taught that probably is not in good faith, and it's being forced or hoisted upon people, and they're targeted with certain truth claims that are just preposterous and false and don't line up with basic realities, created realities, then we should speak very firmly. We should speak very directly, and we should speak in a way that also demonstrates internal inconsistencies. In other words, you can have this sense of kind of punching holes in the darkness at an ideological or institutional level. Because I think that's what you see Jesus doing again and again and again. And so, for instance, like if we were to talk about, let's say, sexuality, and we're talking about right now the push. And I remember when I lived in California in 2010 when we did this, when they passed the law, that now my child could not, if they went into school and they asked about, they, like my daughter said, I'm nine and I think I might be a boy, that immediately we're not allowed to question it, but that they will be put on hormone treatments and transitioned. And she will be counseled towards that. That is something we absolutely, as an ideology, we should call out and we should speak against. And we as Christians should not feel that we can't do that. We should be able to say, I'm sorry, that's a lie. And we should be able to say things like that doesn't even match up with basic academic research on the neurological growth of a child and human development and their ability to make that decision. There's a reason why you can't even sleep with someone and give consent until you're 18. But yet you can change the entire course of your, bi your body and your biological embodiment at that age. We should call that out. We should stand in line with also even radical feminists who are calling out not only the damage it does to children, but the damage it does to women. We should be able to speak firmly. We should speak truthfully. We should point out inconsistencies. Jesus does, does this, but here's the thing. Jesus does it at the ideological, at the institutional level. Jesus does not do that then to individuals who are coming in out of this reality, who have been targeted by it, who have been led into it, have been leading it, and now they're in this place where they're confused, they're broken, and they're going, I don't want this reality, but what do I do with this reality, and how do I find the light. Because often what we do in the church is we can fall into this, this way of going one or the other. And right now, the political divide constantly is forcing us to do this, where either we go on one side where it's always just bang, bang, bang. And we, we use that firm language. And as soon as somebody comes into the church, then we immediately treat them like there's some kind of threat to Western civilization. But instead, with that individual, we are called to move and pursue them, not punch holes like punching them with the darkness, with the light. But instead, we pursue them. And yes, we make known the truth of the ideology, but we come alongside and we show grace in the midst of it while also speaking truthfully about the ideology where you have opportunity. But oftentimes what we do is we treat the individual and at the institutional level and we just go after and we just attack and protect but then on the other side, what we do is we can just be almost naive and go and just pretend like nothing's out there and everyone's acting in good faith and not speak up at all and just be affirming of everything and stand back passively. I think what Jesus shows us here is the in-between, which is that we are called to speak to ideologies. We are called to push back, to punch into the darkness and speak truth. 
and let the light go to work. Let the light shine in the midst of the darkness. But then when it comes to individuals, to realize that that's where we're to turn and realize that they're a fellow human being who's been led into this and we're meant to slow down and walk with them and say, let me walk with me for a while. See how the light shines in the path. See how it shows me how to be a human being just on a basic level and find life there and wrestle with them and cry with them and, and ask the questions and go through the story and say, but I'm standing here and walk with me and bring them to the light. Again, I say this because I know in, what, five, six weeks we have the midterms, and I think what we see again and again here is we tend to either just mock and shame or we tend to just naively think, no, there's no place to speak. I think what it is is we need to think in terms of two tiers, that we have to address what's false, but we also have to love and extend grace those who have been led into it. And, not, and as much as possible, I know that's not easy to separate those two a lot because now ideology is where they tell people to find their identity. But at the same time, you may be the only person who doesn't treat them as just an ideology, but treats them as a human being and not a pawn. And I think we have to wrestle with how we do this well because I don't think we can hide from the darkness. I think we have to speak, but we also have to balance that with being loving and thinking where and what ways we speak. The last one, the darkness in our work. I, I think we, have a, we tend to have a perspective problem when it comes to the darkness we experience in life around us. I, I know I, I have this issue where I'll, I'll kind of feel this weight, like there's darkness around me and, and we have to address it right now. We have to fix it by next week, right? Like you, you come in and it's like this, this pressure to in some way do something, do the right thing, say the right thing, do the great thing that somehow all of a sudden like we have to extinguish the darkness or something. Like it's all on us. And, and, and so what happens is then we think, if I can just do this by this week, or we just set our hope on things like the next election, as if anything in this world can extinguish the darkness. But what Jesus says is, you're, you're always going to have the darkness. You're going to have the poor with you. You're going to have evil. You're going to have your flesh. Until I come again, these are going to be realities. You will not be able to completely extinguish the darkness. And if you fall into the idea that your job is to extinguish the darkness versus having my light and having my life in the midst of the darkness and then seeing the light advance in the midst of the darkness... If you don't have a right perspective in that, then what will happen is you're either going to become entirely, incredibly depressed every day. Because you're looking around going, I, I can just, I can always find darkness. Or on the other hand, what you're going to find yourself doing is wanting to just fight, 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 and erecting these false, usually political salvation schemes that darken the light and the true source of salvation and transformation. And so how do we have a right perspective? Jesus gives us hope because he seems to imply that he'll do more than merely punch holes in the darkness. He seems to imply that he'll remove the reality of darkness completely in some way. That we can have the light of life in spite of the darkness around us, but that eventually he would not only punch a hole in the darkness, but extinguish it, banish it. At his birth, he punched a hole in the darkness. At his death, he buried our darkness. In his resurrection, he binds the darkness. And in his second coming, he will extinguish, banish the darkness. 
says this in Revelation 21, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. I am the light. Come to me. Find life in me. It's just a foretaste of eternity. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. How do we know whatever right now, when you think of just the darkness, of the pain, of the perhaps the... You went in to see a doctor this week and you didn't get good news. Perhaps the darkness is something that you're just internally struggling with at times. Perhaps the darkness is just a general, general sense of anxiety, depression. It's just pressing down on you. What, whatever that thing is in the midst of it, whatever, it's a darkness out there, a darkness within, whatever it may be, in the midst of it, it's so easy to lose hope. And we remember at the end of the day, Jesus is saying, I'm going to bring you home. I will banish the darkness. I will extinguish the darkness. I will give you life in me completely. What will not be there anymore. In my death, I have removed the penalty of darkness and sin. And right now, I'm removing the power of darkness and sin in your life. And I will one day remove the presence of darkness and sin. Take hold of that hope. See that he brings light. He says, come to me. And how do we know it's not just childish sentiment? Because God has revealed it. We know it's not childish sentiment. That even though we see darkness around us, we know it's not just naivety. Because the Father has willed it. The Son has accomplished it. And the Spirit will guide us us home. In Christ, God has removed the penalty of darkness, is removing the power of darkness, and will remove the presence of darkness. So now in this present day, in the midst of the darkness, we can walk in the light. We can live in the light and punch holes in the darkness, knowing that one day, one day, He will extinguish it completely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You Lord, we, we thank you that you have made known your will. Lord, we thank you that you have made known life. And so, Lord, I ask that this morning, Spirit, you would help us to see the light to come to Christ. Lord, I, I ask that wherever we're tempted, Lord, in our flesh to turn from you, to trust in another source for salvation. And Lord, that happens in so many different ways. But Lord, often through a common path of our flesh grabbing hold of us, desire grabbing hold of us, and pulling us away from you. Lord, would you not allow that to happen? Would you open our eyes to see it? Would you turn us to your word? And would we find in your word life? Would we trust you even in the midst of where the, the desires and the feelings don't follow? But Lord, would we trust you until we see the fruit? Lord Jesus, you call us to die to ourselves and pick up our cross and follow you. And Lord, often that comes at the point of our desires. Spirit, would you empower us with joyful obedience in that? Reveal to us where that might be in our lives and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen.